Chapter 11 of The Warlord of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. The Pit of Plenty. I did not languish long within the prison of Salensis Ole. During the short time that I lay there, fettered with chains of gold, I often wondered as to the fate of Thuvan Din, Jeddak of Tarth. My brave companion had followed me into the garden as I attacked Thurid, and when Salensis Ole had left with Dejah Thoris and the others, leaving Thuvi of Tarth behind, he too had remained in the garden with his daughter, apparently unnoticed, for he was apparelled similarly to the guards. The last I had seen of him he stood waiting for the warriors who escorted me to close the gate behind them, that he might be alone with Thuvia. Could it be possible that they had escaped? I doubted it, and yet with all my heart I hoped that it might be true. The third day of my incarceration brought a dozen warriors to escort me to the audience chamber, where Silencesol himself was to try me. A great number of nobles crowded the room, and among them I saw Thurid, but Matai Shang was not there. Dejithoris, as radiantly beautiful as ever, sat upon a small throne beside Silencesol. The expression of sad hopelessness upon her dear face cut deep into my heart. Her position beside the Jeddak of Jeddaks boded ill for her and me, and on the instant that I saw her there, there sprang to my mind the firm intention never to leave that chamber alive if I must leave her in the clutches of this powerful tyrant. I had killed better men than Silenza's soul, and killed them with my bare hands, and now I swore to myself that I should kill him if I found that the only way to save the Princess of Helium. That it would mean almost instant death for me I cared not, except that it would remove me from further efforts in behalf of Dejithoris, and for this reason alone I would have chosen another way, for even though I should kill Silensis Ole, that act would not restore my beloved wife to her own people. I had determined to wait the final outcome of the trial, that I might learn all that I could of the Ocarian ruler's intentions, and then act accordingly. Scarcely had I come before him than Silensis Ole summoned Thurid also. Dator Thurid, he said, you have made a strange request of me, but in accordance with your wishes and your promise that it will result only to my interests, I have decided to accede. You tell me that a certain announcement will be the means of convicting this prisoner, and at the same time open the way to the gratification of my dearest wish. Thurid nodded. Then shall I make the announcement here before all my nobles, continued Silencesol. For a year no queen has sat upon the throne beside me, and now it suits me to take to wife one who is reputed the most beautiful woman upon Basum. The statement which none may truthfully deny. Nobles of Okar, unsheathe your swords and do homage to Dejah Thoris, princess of Helium, and future queen of Okar, for at the end of the allotted ten days she shall become the wife of Selensus O. As the nobles drew their blades and lifted them on high in accordance with the ancient custom of Okar, when a Jeddak announces his intention to wed, Dejithoris sprang to her feet, and raising her hand aloft, cried in a loud voice that they desist. 
I may not be the wife of Salensus old, she pleaded, for already I be a wife and mother. John Carter, Prince of Helium, still lives. I know it to be true, for I overheard Matai Shang tell his daughter Fedor that he had seen him in Kaor, at the court of Kulan Tith, Jeddak. But Jeddak does not wed a married woman, nor will Salensus old thus violate the bonds of matrimony. Salensus old turned upon Thurid with an ugly look. Is this the surprise you held in store for me? he cried. You assured me that no obstacle which might not be easily overcome stood between me and this woman, and now I find that the one insuperable obstacle intervenes. What mean you, man? What have you to say? And should I deliver John Carter into your hands, Salensus old? Would you not feel that I had more than satisfied the promise that I made you? Answered Thurid. Talk not like a fool, cried the enraged Jeddak. I am no child to be thus played with. I am talking only as a man who knows, replied Thurid. Knows that he can do all that he claims. Then turn Don Carter over to me within ten days, or yourself suffer the end that I should mete out to him, were he in my power snapped the Jeddak of Jeddaks, with an ugly scowl. "'You need not wait ten days,' Salensus old replied Thurid, and then, turning suddenly upon me, as he extended a pointing finger, he cried, "'There stands John Carter, Prince of Helium!' "'Fool!' shrieked Salensus old. "'Fool! John Carter is a white man! This fellow be as yellow as myself!' John Carter's face is smooth. Matai Shang has described him to me. This prisoner has a beard and mustache as large and black as any in Okar. Quick, guardsman, to the pits with the black maniac who wishes to throw his life away for a poor joke upon your ruler. Hold, cried Thurid, and springing forward before I could guess his intention, he had grasped my beard and ripped the whole false fabric from my face and head revealing my smooth, tanned skin beneath, and my close-cropped black hair. Instantly pandemonium reigned in the audience chamber of Salensus Ol. Warriors pressed forward with drawn blades, thinking that I might be contemplating the assassination of the Jeddak of Jeddaks, while others, out of curiosity to see one whose name was familiar from pole to pole, crowded behind their fellows. As my identity was revealed, I saw Deja Thoris spring to her feet, amazement writ large upon her face. And then, through that jam of armed men, she forced her way before any could prevent. A moment only, and she was before me with outstretched arms and eyes filled with the light of her great love. John Carter, John Carter, she cried, as I folded her to my breast. And then, of a sudden, I knew why she had denied me in the garden beneath the tower. What a fool I had been, expecting that she would penetrate the marvellous disguise that had been wrought for me by the barber of Marentina. She had not known me, that was all, and when she saw the sign of love from a stranger she was offended and righteously indignant. Indeed, but I had been a fool. And it was you, she cried, who spoke to me from the tower. How could I dream that my beloved Virginian lay behind that fierce beard and that yellow skin? She had been one to call me her Virginian as a term of endearment, 
for she knew that I loved the sound of that beautiful name, made a thousand times more beautiful and hallowed by her dear lips. And as I heard it again after all those long years, my eyes became dimmed with tears, and my voice choked with emotion. But an instant did I crush that dear form to me, ere Salensus old, trembling with rage and jealousy, shouldered his way to us. Seize the man! he cried to his warriors, and a hundred ruthless hands tore us apart. Well it was for the nobles of the court of Okar that John Carter had been disarmed. As it was, a dozen of them felt the weight of my clenched fists, and I had fought my way half up the steps before the throne, to which Salensus Ole had carried Dejah Thoris, ere ever they could stop me. Then I went down, fighting, beneath a half-hundred warriors. But before they had battered me into unconsciousness, I heard that, from the lips of Dejah Thoris, that made all my suffering well worth while. Standing there beside the great tyrant who clutched her by the arm, she pointed to where I fought alone against such awful odds. "'Think you, Salensus Ole, that the wife of such as he is,' she cried, "'would ever dishonour his memory were he a thousand times dead by mating with a lesser mortal? "'Lives there, upon any world, such another as John Carter, Prince of Helium?' Lives there another man who could fight his way back and forth across a warlike planet, facing savage beasts and hordes of savage men for the love of a woman? I, Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium, am his. He fought for me and won me. If you be a brave man, you will honor the bravery that is his, and you will not kill him. Make him a slave, if you will, Salensus Ole, but spare his life. I would rather be a slave with such as he than be queen of Okar. Neither slave nor queen dictates to Salensus Ole, replied the Jeddak of Jeddaks. John Carter shall die a natural death in the pit of plenty, and the day he dies, Dejah Thoris shall become my queen. I did not hear her reply for it was then that a blow upon my head brought unconsciousness, and when I recovered my senses only a handful of guardsmen remained in the audience chamber with me. As I opened my eyes, they goaded me with the points of their swords and bade me rise. Then they led me through long corridors to a court far toward the center of the palace. In the center of the court was a deep pit, near the edge of which stood half a dozen other guardsmen awaiting me. One of them carried a long rope in his hands, which he commenced to make ready as we approached. We had come to within fifty feet of these men, when I felt a sudden strange and rapid pricking sensation in one of my fingers. For a moment I was nonplussed by the odd feeling, and then there came to me recollection of that which in the stress of my adventure I had entirely forgotten, the gift ring of Prince Talu of Marantina. Instantly I looked toward the group we were nearing, at the same time raising my left hand to my forehead, that the ring might be visible to one who sought it. Simultaneously one of the waiting warriors raised his left hand, ostensibly to brush back his hair, and upon one of his fingers I saw the duplicate of my own ring. A quick look of intelligence passed between us, after which I kept my eyes turned away from the warrior, and did not look at him again, 
for fear that I might arouse the suspicion of the Ocarians. When we reached the edge of the pit, I saw that it was very deep, and presently I realized I was soon to judge just how far it extended below the surface of the cord, for he who held the rope passed it about my body in such a way that it could be released from above at any time. And then, as all the warriors grasped it, he pushed me forward and I fell into the yawning abyss. After the first jerk, as I reached the end of the rope that had been paid out to let me fall below the pit's edge, they lowered me quickly but smoothly. The moment before the plunge, while two or three of the men had been assisting and adjusting the rope about me, one of them had brought his mouth close to my cheek, and in the brief interval before I was cast into the forbidding hole, he breathed a single word into my ear. Courage! The pit, which my imagination had pictured as bottomless, proved to be not more than a hundred feet in depth. But as its walls were smoothly polished, it might as well have been a thousand feet, for I could never hope to escape without outside assistance. For a day I was left in darkness, and then, quite suddenly, a brilliant light illumined my strange cell. I was reasonably hungry and thirsty by this time, not having tasted food or drink since the day prior to my incarceration. To my amazement I found the sides of the pit, that I had thought smooth, lined with shelves, upon which were the most delicious viands and liquid refreshments that Okar afforded. With an exclamation of delight, I sprang forward to partake of some of the welcome food, but ere ever I reached it the light was extinguished, and though I groped my way about the chamber, my hands came in contact with nothing beside the smooth, hard wall that I had felt on my first examination of my prison. Immediately the pangs of hunger and thirst began to assail me. Where before I had had but a mild craving for food and drink, I now actually suffered for want of it and all because of the tantalizing sight that I had had of food almost within my grasp. Once more darkness and silence enveloped me, a silence that was broken only by a single mocking laugh. For another day nothing occurred to break the monotony of my imprisonment or relieve the suffering superinduced by hunger and thirst. Slowly the pangs became less keen, as suffering deadened the activity of certain nerves. And then the light flashed on once again, and before me stood an array of new and tempting dishes, with great bottles of clear water and flagons of refreshing wine, upon the outside of which the cold sweat of condensation stood. Again, with the hunger madness of a wild beast, I sprang forward to seize those tempting dishes, but as before the light went out, and I came to a sudden stop against a hard wall. Then the mocking laugh rang out for a second time. The Pit of Plenty. Ah, what a cruel mind must have devised this exquisite hellish torture. Day after day was the thing repeated until I was on the verge of madness, and then, as I had done in the pits of the Warhoons, I took a new firm hold upon my reason and forced it back into the channels of sanity. By sheer will-power I regained control over my tottering mentality, and so successful was I that the next time that the light came I sat quite still and looked indifferently at the fresh and tempting food almost within my reach. Glad I was that I had done so, 
for it gave me an opportunity to solve the seeming mystery of those vanishing banquets. As I made no move to reach the food, the torturers left the light turned on in the hope that, at last, I could refrain no longer from giving them the delicious thrill of enjoyment that my former futile efforts to obtain it had caused. And as I sat scrutinizing the laden shelves, I presently saw how the thing was accomplished, and so simple was it that I wondered I had not guessed it before. The wall of my prison was of clearest glass. Behind the glass were the tantalizing viands. After nearly an hour the light went out, but this time there was no mocking laughter, at least not upon the part of my tormentors. But I, to be quits with them, gave a low laugh that none might mistake for the cackle of a maniac. Nine days passed, and I was weak from hunger and thirst, but no longer suffering. I was past that. Then, down through the darkness above, a little parcel fell to the floor at my side. Indifferently I groped for it, thinking it but some new invention of my jailer's to add to my sufferings. At last I found it, a tiny package wrapped in paper, at the end of a strong and slender cord. As I opened it, a few lozenges fell to the floor. As I gathered them up, feeling of them and smelling of them, I discovered that they were tablets of concentrated food such as are quite common in all parts of Barsoom. Poison, I thought. Well, what of it? Why not end my misery now rather than drag out a few more wretched days in this dark pit? Slowly I raised one of the little pellets to my lips. Goodbye, Medija Thoris, I breathed. I have lived for you and fought for you, and now my next dearest wish is to be realized, for I shall die for you. And taking the morsel in my mouth, I devoured it. One by one I ate them all, nor ever did anything taste better than those tiny bits of nourishment, within which I knew must lie the seeds of death possibly of some hideous, torturing death. As I sat quietly upon the floor of my prison waiting for the end, my fingers by accident came in contact with the bit of paper in which the things had been wrapped, and as I idly played with it, my mind roaming far back into the past, that I might live again for a few brief moments before I died, some of the many happy moments of a long and happy life, I became aware of strange protuberances upon the smooth surface of the parchment-like substance in my hands. For a time they carried no special significance to my mind. I merely was mildly wondrous that they were there. But at last they seemed to take form, and then I realized that there was but a single line of them, like writing. Now, more interestedly, my fingers traced and retraced them. There were four separate and distinct combinations of raised lines. Could it be that these were four words, and that they were intended to carry a message to me? The more I thought of it, the more excited I became, until my fingers raced madly back and forth over those bewildering little hills and valleys upon that bit of paper. But I could make nothing of them, and at last I decided that my very haste was preventing me from solving the mystery. Then I took it more slowly. Again and again my forefinger traced the first of those four combinations. 
Martian writing is rather difficult to explain to an Earthman. It is something of a cross between shorthand and picture writing, and it is an entirely different language from the spoken language of Mars. Upon Barsoom there is but a single oral language. It is spoken today by every race and nation, just as it was at the beginning of human life upon Barsoom. It has grown with the growth of the planet's learning and scientific achievements, but so ingenious a thing it is that new words to express new thoughts or describe new conditions or discoveries form themselves. No other word could explain the thing that a new word is required for other than the word that naturally falls to it. And so, no matter how far removed two nations or races, their spoken languages are identical. Not so their written languages, however. No two nations have the same written language, and often cities of the same nation have a written language that differs greatly from that of the nation to which they belong. Thus it was that the signs upon the paper, if in reality they were words, baffled me for some time, but at last I made out the first one. It was courage, and it was written in the letters of Marantina. Courage! That was the word the yellow guardsman had whispered in my ear, as I stood upon the verge of the pit of plenty. The message must be from him, and he, I knew, was a friend. With renewed hope I bent my every energy to the deciphering of the balance of the message, and at last success rewarded my endeavor. I had read the four words. Courage! Follow the rope! End of chapter 11 Recording by Thomas Copeland